This is Healthcare Policy Unpacked, a podcast exclusively for Health Plan Alliance members, produced in partnership with Spring Street Exchange and policy insider Chris Condolucci. Welcome to our listeners to the Health Plan Alliance's policy podcast. This is our October edition. I'm Dennis Bolin. I work for you at the Alliance. And with me, as always, is Chris Condolucci. Hi, Chris. Hey, how are you? Hope everyone is doing well. Who's tuning in? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, here in Dallas, it's still pretty hot, even in October. We've got, you know, 80 and 90 degree days. But, uh, they, you know, for the rest of the country, that fall weather has probably kicked in. It's probably kicked in for you too, Chris. And, you know, kids are back in school. You've got two kids, right? Sports has started to kick in yep. again and a routine is starting up. Yes, never a dull moment, but it's all fun and you just balance all just like we all do. It's all about balancing. Well, it is fun. And I can almost guarantee that it's a lot more fun than some of the things that are going on in Washington right now. It seems to be a lot of back and forth and bickering and just a lot of a flurry of activity. And you've told us to keep our eyes on what was going to happen in September and October. And you were right. There was a lot of activity in September and it's pushing through to October promises to be more of the same. So maybe that's a place for us to start. Give us an update and tell us what currently is going on. Yeah, no, I appreciate that starting to all of this because it is something that we've talked about and something that I don't want to say warned, but we predicted that it was going to be, you know, a crazy September and now it's going to be a crazy October and November and likely December. And it might even spill into the first quarter But really where the update is, it's just picking up off the stuff that we've been saying to everybody. There's this hard infrastructure package, which is funding for roads, bridges, public transportation, broadband, et cetera, that there was a bipartisan agreement in the Senate, President Biden fully supporting that bipartisan agreement in the Senate. But Democrats in the House of Representatives, on the other hand, were not so inclined to jump on that bill and pass it very quickly. And their primary reason for not jumping behind this bipartisan hard infrastructure package was because many of the progressives in the House Democratic Caucus demanded that this soft infrastructure package that we also talked about, the funding for things like a paid leave program, increased child tax credit, Enhanced premium subsidies in the individual market, adding vision, dental, and hearing to traditional Medicare. That package, progressives demanded that that package be passed and approved by the Senate, as well as the health, before the hard infrastructure package, the funding for the roads, bridges, et cetera, is agreed to. Well, as you would expect in which most folks are reading in the news, there was not agreement on the timing on when the hard infrastructure package was going to get a vote and when the soft infrastructure package is going to get a vote. And the last thing I'll say, Dennis, is when it comes to this soft infrastructure package that we continually talk about, the social spending programs that I just articulated and more, there is some back and forth between moderate Democrats and progressive Democrats in both the House of Representatives but mostly in the Senate. And there is this back and forth 
on how much this package is going to cost. And that fight is going to spill out into October and arguably through October and into November. So we won't know all of the details of the soft infrastructure package until the drama, as I always say, plays out. And we're seeing it play out in this month of September, as I tried to articulate, as well as, again, spilling into these next couple months. So uh, stay tuned, as I always like to say. Well, Chris, I do want to look forward to the future because the words you use to describe it, like drama, they catch my attention. But before I do, I want to go back just a little bit to September again and get us caught up there. The headlines that were all over the place in September had to do with Biden's announcements around vaccine mandate. Some people put a slightly different spin on it and said it was really as much about a testing mandate as it was a vaccine mandate. But our members are interested in it because they wear two hats, right? They're employers. And then they also provide health care coverage to their members and their patients. And the vaccine mandate or the testing mandate really came into play with both of those activities, right? Yep. Yeah, no, 100%. And so it is is good to go back to talk about this pronouncement from the White House. And then there was some guidance that was just issued that I'll speak to briefly relating to the vaccine and the coverage costs, the, the insurance coverage of the vaccine that I'll touch on at the end. But to your point, so as folks read in the news, because it was widely reported, widely interpreted one way, another, whatever, is President Biden, through an executive order, said, private employers, you must require your employees to get a vaccine or to undergo weekly testing. And what's important for everyone on this call to understand, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again, an executive order is not the force of law. An executive order simply is a pronouncement of the administration's policy priorities, and then it tells the federal departments to do something to effectuate those policy priorities, either through issuing guidance or just enforcing the law that the president is saying, you know, federal departments, you must do this. So when September 9th, when this executive order came out, a lot of people freaked out and understandably so because it wasn't reported, I think, appropriately or accurately or, or correctly. And so folks thought it was immediate. But again, it's not immediate because an executive order is not the force of law. But it's important to understand what does the executive order, what does this pronouncement, these policy priorities, who do they apply to? Well, when it comes to the federal government, you said your members, they are an employer, as well as providing health coverage to consumers. Well, the federal government is also an employer itself. It's an employer. So the federal government has said, federal employees, you must get a vaccine or face disciplinary action. There isn't even a testing option for federal employees. And this particular pronouncement is indeed a mandate. And the federal government can do it because as an employer, you can tell your employees what to do from a condition of employment perspective. Now, what about private employers? Well, generally speaking, the federal government can't tell private employers what to do unless there's a hook that the federal government can lock into or latch into, or there's a statute that Congress passed that allows the federal government to say, this is what you got to do. So when it comes to private employers that are receiving federal funds, 
from the federal government, like a hospital contracting with the federal government for Medicare reimbursements. Well, as a condition of contract, the federal government can say, hey, employer who's receiving federal funds, if you want to continue to receive said government funds, you must require your employees to get a vaccine or undergo weekly testing. So this is where the testing came in. And they can do that because it's a condition of contract. If a private employer doesn't want to subject their employees to the vaccine or the testing requirement, well, then they just won't get their government funding anymore. And that's the way the federal government is trying to get those private sector employers to do this. What about private sector employers that aren't receiving any federal funds? Well, the president and the White House are trying to utilize OSHA, which is the labor arm of the Department of Labor, to write a workplace standard that says, hey, private sector employers, your workplace is dangerous if your employees do not get a vaccine or do not subject themselves to weekly testing. And if you are not in compliance with this workplace violation, you will be penalized. And we will wait for guidance from OSHA, this agency within the Department of Labor, as to how that works. But that hopefully, you know, is a little longer than I wanted to talk about, Dennis, but hopefully that in a nutshell gives folks a sense of what's going on. Oh, let me say one last thing on this so-called vaccine mandate, because Dennis, you mentioned like the testing. One issue that's cropped up on the testing is there might not be enough tests to go around if all these private sector employers need to subject their employees to testing in cases where the employee doesn't want to get the vaccine, the employer doesn't require them, or the employee has a disability-related reason or religious-related reason as to why they are not getting the vaccine. And then also the cost of the vaccine and the coverage of it is a big deal. As I mentioned to you, the guidance that I wanted to say at the end here, there was guidance that was just issued to remind everybody that the vaccine is a preventive service under the Affordable Care Act. And the Affordable Care Act says that your health plan must cover that preventive service with no cost sharing. So that's a statutory requirement. It's a reminder under the Affordable Care Act that you're going to have to pay for these vaccines. So that is a big deal for your carrier members, as well as your members as an employer. All right, Chris, thanks. That helps a lot because, as I said, our members wear two hats. And then another complicating factor is our members were asking, well, are we federal contractors because we accept Medicare Advantage or, you know, Medicaid and and payment from the government? So thanks for all that clarification. That really helps a lot. So with that, then, let's turn our eyes forward to October. You mentioned on our last podcast that in September, we should expect some guidance to come out around a surprise medical billing. Well, the administration waited until the last day of September, September 30th, I think it was, that the guidelines came out. So, you know, you've only had less than a week to take a look at them. So I hope you didn't have to spend the weekend reading through that 500 pages. But what have you learned and what do we need to know? Well, no rest for the weary, Dennis, or, or better stated, no rest for the wicked, as I like to say. So, no, sadly, I was up during those weekends or that weekend, um, of October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 
reading through the 500 pages of reg, but that's just part of the drill. So it's all good. But I did get through that reg. And so we wanted to take this opportunity to provide some detail to our members on what this September 30th interim final rule said. Now, as Dennis indicated, you know, I had been thinking that this particular IFR was going to be coming out earlier in September. It wasn't until September 30th. And what was this IFR detailing? Well, the IFR detailed how the federally developed arbitration independent dispute resolution process works. So throughout this, I'm going to use the word arbitration and IDR interchangeably. So just so everyone follows my wording here. So just know that this IFR details how the arbitration slash IDR process works under the Federal No Surprises Act requirements. Uh, Important stuff. Now, as I've explained to everybody before, as we've talked about the surprise billing rules, is you can almost characterize these rules as a payment process. And you could also compartmentalize these processes by different periods of time. And then within those different periods of time, the payer, the insurance carrier, or the self-insured plan, and the provider to an extent, but more for the payment process for the carrier and the plan, has to do something within those periods of time. So for example, when we explained the July 1st IFR that came out, where the federal departments did detail how this payment process works, the federal departments told us that once there is an out-of-network item or service that is furnished, the provider sends a bill to the carrier or to the plan. And once that carrier or plan receives that bill or that claim, the carrier slash plan has 30 days to decide whether they want to make an initial payment to the provider or just deny the payment outright. So you have 30 days once you receive that bill. The September 30th IFR that talked about the arbitration process actually reached back and talked a little bit about this process that I just went through, and they call it the beginning of the open negotiation process. Now, this open negotiation process begins once the payer sends an initial payment or a denial of payment to the provider. Then once the provider receives that initial payment or the denial, then the provider has 30 days to initiate what's called an open negotiation between the payer and the provider. Now, let's say the provider receives the initial payment on, let's just say, October 1st. The provider then has 30 days to start the open negotiation process. So they could wait until October 29th. The provider could. Send a notice to the payer and say, let's start negotiating. And that's allowed under this rule. Or the provider could on October 2nd say to the payer, hey, let's start negotiating. So that just gives you an example of these timeframes, these periods, and what you got to do. So again, you get the claim as a payer. You have 30 days to send initial payment or deny. You send it. Provider 
then has 30 days to decide whether they want to negotiate or at least initiate the negotiation. Then, once the provider initiates negotiation, they're going to do it through what's called an open negotiation notice, which is what the September IFR calls it. And once that notice is sent, that then starts another 30-day period over which the payer and the provider can negotiate and decide on what a final payment amount should be. Now, the last couple comments here, Dennis, on open negotiation. So 30 days, once the open negotiation notice is sent by the provider to the payer, 30-day clock begins. If you negotiate and you come up with a, a meeting of the minds, you're done. Process over. If you do not have a meeting of the minds during that 30-day period, each party or one of the parties can then initiate the arbitration process. Now, you must, you must exhaust the 30-day period that starts when the provider sends that notice of negotiation to the payer. So you must exhaust it before you go to arbitration. And then lastly, uh, Dennis, the federal government has created like a federal website or called a federal web portal through which much of the surprise billing processes that I discussed and will discuss will be submitted through. This open negotiation notice that I mentioned that the provider will be sending to the payer will be sent through this federal portal that the federal government has set up. Well, Chris, that was a lot of information there. So first of all, thank you very much. And it was like almost drinking out of a fire hose. I really appreciated the definitions and the timeline. I, for one, am going to have to go back and spend a little bit more time with that. And so I know we will in the future continue to take a look at this. Uh, but I got a feeling there's probably more to the story, right? There's probably more to this arbitration process. Yes, sadly, Dennis, there is. And <laughs> it's always so tough to talk about these technical things in such a short amount of time. And I talk so fast sometimes, but to the point that you raised, Dennis, is we will be going back and we will be writing on this. We will be uh, having future podcasts on this. So for all those members who are tuning in, know that this is just the beginning of detailing not only the surprise billing rules as a whole, but certainly the arbitration process. And now to your point, Dennis, and your question, is there more? And yes, as I stated, there is more. So let's actually launch into the arbitration process, this IDR process. As I mentioned to you, at the end of the open negotiation period, which is 30 days, which must be exhausted, either party may initiate the arbitration process during the four business day period that starts on the 31st business day after the negotiation process. So again, I used October 1st. And because we're in October, if there's no meeting of the minds by October 30th, if I'm the provider, I have four days to initiate arbitration starting on October 31st. So I can wait until November 4th, or I can do it October 31st, or I could do it November 1st, I can initiate that process. So know that that's kind of the time period. Any party, and a pair could do it too, mind you, any party that's initiating this arbitration process must, must do it 
through this federal portal that I mentioned. There's a specific notification that the federal government is creating that you submit through the federal portal. Now, sticking with the arbitration process, the initiating party must select an arbiter that has been certified by the federal government to arbitrate the case or this dispute. And both parties must agree to this particular arbiter within three business days of the initiation of the arbitration. So again, going back to my days, let's say the provider initiates arbitration on October 31st. Within three days, the payer and the provider have to agree on that arbiter. If the payer and provider do not agree on the arbiter, the federal government will do it for you. And the federal government has three additional days starting on that third day to pick an arbiter and it'll be assigned to you. So basically six days after the October 31st in my hypothetical, the federal government will give us an arbiter if we don't agree to it. So that's important to tell you about the choosing of the arbiter because when the arbiter is selected, there is a 30-day period that begins. And that 30-day period is the arbitration process period over which a couple of things are going to happen. The first thing that's going to happen is each of the parties, the payer and the provider, have 10 days from the day the arbiter is selected to submit their offer to the arbiter with supporting information as to why their offer is the one that the arbiter should pick. And then the arbiter will consider that information that is submitted. So that, Dennis, is much of the process that I wanted to lead with. And it segues into this very, 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 in my opinion, very, very important aspect of arbitration and something that we've been waiting for anxiously from the federal departments. In the September 30th IFR, the federal departments have confirmed that the qualifying payment amount, which is this in-network median rate for the medical items or services that are furnished in the geographic region, that's the benchmark rate. So this qualifying payment amount, this in-network median benchmark rate is the primary factor that an arbiter must look to when determining a final payment amount. And actually, the federal departments went so far as to say that the arbiter should assume that this qualifying payment amount, this in-network median rate benchmark, is the right final payment amount. And unless the provider can provide the arbiter with additional information rebutting or showing the arbiter that this in-network median benchmark rate is not appropriate, the arbiter always has to go to the qualifying payment amount or the offer that is closest to it. So the federal departments have effectively said because the in-network rate, in the federal department's opinion, represents a reasonable market-driven value, that that value deserves a rebuttable presumption that it is always the right payment amount. And unless the provider can tell the arbiter otherwise, 
The arbiter always has to go to the qualifying payment amount, this in-network median rate benchmark, or whatever amount is closest to that QPA. So let me say a couple of last things, Dennis, um, and then I'll turn it back to you. But um, back to this qualifying payment amount is the primary factor. Well, what other additional factors can the uh, provider furnish to the arbiter to say, you know what, this so-called reasonable market-driven value is not representative of the value of the particular service. Well, the statute enumerates a number of additional factors or a number of additional criteria that the provider can furnish to the arbiter and point to and say, hey, arbiter, the qualifying payment amount should be higher than what it is based on the fact that we are a teaching hospital or based on, based on the patient acuity and how difficult this particular medical procedure was. There's other factors like uh, was, was the payer or the provider not willing to enter into a network contract? What's the market share of the payer? What's the market share of the provider? All of that information is, again, this additional criteria that the arbiter can consider to say, hey, this qualifying payment amount, this in-network median benchmark, this reasonable market-driven value is not appropriate. That's the only factors that the arbiter can take into account to deviate from the qualifying payment amount, which is why um, it is, it, it, it's so important that the federal departments clarified for this. And so then last thing I'll say, Dennis, is the arbiter is not responsible for determining whether this qualifying payment amount, this in-network median rate was calculated correctly or incorrectly. The arbiter is not responsible for determining whether the QPA is correct or not. All the arbiter was responsible for is taking the information that is given to them by the provider and the payer and determining whether the QPA is indeed the right amount or whether the additional factors allows the arbiter to increase that for whatever reason. Well, Chris, now I understand why, as you started to explain that, you said it was very, very important. Bold those letters, the, those guidelines and the roles of the arbiter and the guidance that they have and the rules that they work within. That's really super helpful. Thank you. I'm almost afraid to ask, but is there anything else <laughs> that we need to know at this stage? There's always more. There's always more. But I won't go into great detail with the more because we'll be back with more, not being repetitive. But there is more. And just three, four bullet points for everyone to understand is back to this factors that the arbiter can and, and actually cannot take into account, which is what I want to speak to, cannot take into account. The statute says that the arbiter cannot take into account factors like bill charges, usual or customary rates, or rates paid by public payers. So those are factors that cannot be taken into account to determine whether the QPA is right or wrong or whether the arbiter should go higher or not. And now the last point on this, the arbiter cannot take into rates paid by public payers. There's always been a question of whether, does that mean that the arbiter cannot take into account percentages of Medicare in this whole process? And it's something that I've said to folks before, but the federal departments confirm this, that a percentage of Medicare can be used to determine the value of the qualifying payment amount itself, the in-network rate value. 
And so if you can use a percentage of Medicare to determine the value of the QPA, this in-network median rate, well, then by definition, the arbiter can look to a percentage of Medicare because it represents the QPA, which is, again, this primary factor that the arbiter has to look at. So the long and short is, is you can use percentage of Medicare when it comes to this process because it will be a part of the value of determining a QPA should you know that value be based on a percentage of Medicare. And then the last thing I'll say is to be an arbiter, the federal government does have to certify you. And there are really detailed rules that the arbiter has to meet, including you have to show that you don't have a conflict of interest, that your employees don't work for a payer or a provider, et cetera. There's a lot of stuff there, but know that there are rules and really detailed rules for how to determine a certified arbiter and to make sure that they are not biased during this process. Well, Chris, like I said, this was a bit like drinking out of a fire hose. You put a lot in front of us today. So thank you as always. And because there was so much, I know we're going to come back to this conversation in the future. And I also want to remind our listeners that on October the 13th, we have our next policy forum, which will be live, but then also archived on our website. So thank you, Chris. And until next time. Yes, I hope everyone stays safe out there. Try to have some fun. And um, if you need to read the uh, arbitration rule, My condolences. (laughs) Don't spend your weekend doing it, right? That is right. (laughs) Try to think of something else fun to do. You got us to backstop you. All right. Take care, everyone. Take care. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode in a few weeks. Until then, keep an eye on your inbox for the next issue of our Policy Brief. To engage in a live Q&A with Chris Condolucci and our friends at Spring Street Exchange, be sure to register for our upcoming Policy Forum. To learn more, visit healthplanalliance.org. See you next time on Healthcare Policy Unpacked.